Hello! I am Randy Andrews, and today I've got Erica Christie with me as we talk about Inner Space from 1987. We'll discuss the cast, the background, the technical aspects, and the fantastic score by Jerry Goldsmith. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. Welcome to Soundtrack Alley. Erica, it's great to have you on the show again. Thank you so much, Randy. (laughs) So, uh, what were your first uh, impressions of Inner Space? Uh, I'm not sure I could remember first impressions because I would have been really young when I saw it. Um, Me too, me too. But I do remember that I practically melted the VHS tape. I watched it so many times. Like, this is one of those movies that, for whatever reason, I was just completely obsessed with as a little kid. So I watched it all the time, just over and over and over again. And uh, honestly, I don't even know what what it was about the movie that I was so obsessed with. But uh, yeah, just watched it all, all, all the time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed watching it, too. Um... One of the things that I always remember is, like, the scene where Dennis Quaid is inside the eye. And Mm -hmm. he shoots out that prong thing into the Mm -hmm. eye. And you see Martin Mm -hmm. Short go, ah! (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, man, that's going to be bad audio right there. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. That's all right. But, uh, yeah, so I I love this movie. I think it's a a blast. It's a lot of fun. Um, Dennis Quaid is great as being this cocky, over-the-top pilot. And uh, Meg Ryan being the uh, quirky, lovable gal that she always is portrayed in almost every film she's in. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, Martin Short. I mean, we get the comedic genius of Martin Short. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, He's and this so was great. really only his second big movie. That he had done Three Amigos right before this, and this was kind of his second big movie. So, if yeah. watching him, you would have assumed that he's been doing this for years. I mean, <laughs> he's done obviously. He's a comedian. He does improv. He was on SNL, but you would think mm-hmm. that he was like an actual like movie star, like really experienced. And it really wasn't. This was really just his second big movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so uh, it's a great, you know, like, pretty much introduction to Martin Short on the big screen, and then, I mean, as we'll talk about, there's some other characters in the film that you will recognize later on in the history (laughs) of movies or even TV, so uh, one thing that I really liked, what I've really found interesting was that Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan met on the set and they got married and they were married from 91 to 2001. So only 10 years, 
Which, isn't that just kind of the default of what a lot of celebrities do nowadays? <laughs> uh, nowadays, I think it's more like a year and a half, but... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, yeah. But, I mean, still, ten years. That was something. And then, like, Amy Irving. She was married to Steven Spielberg at the time. And when he showed her the script, she uh, wanted to play the role of Lydia Maxwell. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, William Schellert, he was cast as Jack's doctor as an in-joke because he also played the doctor in The Incredible Shrinking Man. How ironic is that? Yeah, Dante seems to like to throw uh, different kind of characters into roles uh, just because he thinks it's funny. So (laughs) it feels like that was very much a Dante, you know, sort of a giggle to yourself type of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, like, the lab workers uh, scene where Dennis Quaid was about to be miniaturized was actual laboratory workers, and that the actors would not be suitable in performing what real lab rats do. And so... (laughs) So they were able to actually be themselves, more or less... Uh, to do the work that they were supposed to do. So I thought that was kind of cool. And let's see. Luca Bercovici, I think. He was the original actor to play Igo, and his scenes were shot but then replaced because the producers felt he was too intimidating and... (laughs) this got me, was that he was the same height and weight or height and body size as Martin Short, which would make him not very formidable mm-hmm. because he's not very big. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's, so there's they had some to small actors that can really that. pull off like good villain roles and it's always kind of fun to cast against type. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, if, if he was just a little too small and just didn't have, you know, enough of the scariness in him, uh, yeah, they just had to replace him with someone else. So it's unfortunate, but I mean, yeah. the guy that got to do it was really fantastic. So I think in the end, it ended up helping the film. Oh, I agree. I agree. In fact, uh, Vernon Wells was the one that actually ended up playing that major villain. And uh, he based his performances on Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator. And that pretty much, you know, set it up, you know, mm. and... Uh, Big, scary, not saying anything. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was perfect for that. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's one one thing. There was, you know, also when they were tossing out ideas of who would play... Uh, Lydia Maxwell, uh, Ali Sheedy, Molly Ringwald, Demi Moore, several other female actresses uh, were uh, trying for that role. But then the male role of Tuck Pendleton were uh, (laughs) tossed around to, like, basically all the major actors that existed (laughs) at the time. Yep. I mean, you know, you could count on your fingers or you could just think of all the popular movies that were existing during this time period and 
that would be one of the char- one of the actors that was actually considered for the role. So, and then also like the comedic actor. Um, what are some of the comedic actors that you could notice? Uh, what do you mean that could have played the part? Yeah. What do you um, think? Who do you think? Who do I think could have played it other than Martin Short? Yeah. Um, wow. Well, I mean, there's a lot. I think a lot of people who would have done a great <laughs> job. I mean, obviously, I mean, Steve Martin and Chevy Chase, who he had just worked with. I mean, either of those guys would have done a good job. I don't think they would have done as good as Martin did. But I think mm-hmm. both of them would have gonna done a good job. Um, pretty much any of the guys on SNL. I mean, there's there yeah, there's a long list of of guys that would have done yeah. a good job. Oh yeah, and uh, you know it just it it throws around a lot of ideas that that this actually was a very popular movie, and the whole idea revolved around having it be kind of a fantastic voyage type movie, but altered and changed to be a sci-fi like a more sci-fi movie to where you actually have miniaturization and like you have somebody grow and chaos and uh spy thrillery (laughs) is thrown in the mix so Mm. um, actually joe dante turned down the film because he said it was too much like uh, Fantastic Voyage. So he actually turned down the mm-hmm. film multiple times, and it wasn't until it was completely rewritten and totally different from Fantastic Voyage before he agreed to direct it. Well, and that makes sense, too, because mm-hmm. it's like you wouldn't want a film to be the exact replica of Fantastic Voyage, and it made it a much more entertaining film mm-hmm. because personally, I think Fantastic Voyage is a little dull. Of course, it was made in the 60s, so. <laughs> so, yeah. A little bit of a dull film. Okay, so here's a question for you. There are four actors who were portrayed in Star Trek that were actually in this movie. Who were they? I mean, Robert Ricardo is obvious. Um, yes. Wow. No, off the top of my head, I don't think I, I, I... I'm sure I recognize some of the faces, but I don't know the names of anybody else. It was Henry Gibson, Dick Miller, Andrea Martin, and William Schallert. What did Andrea so. Martin do in Star Trek? Uh, they were among the cast that guest starred on the original Star Trek. Was she? Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't remember her being in the series. Okay, I'll have to go yeah. back and see which episode she was in. Trouble with Tribbles. Oh my gosh, was she in that? Okay, yeah, I was probably yeah. distracted by the Tribbles and I didn't <laughs> notice that Andrew Martin was there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I thought that was kind of cool. Um, and... In regard to Robert Picardo, he had to do a lot of work uh, to get ready for that role because, like, when they were doing like the changing of uh, Jack Putter's face and everything, and uh, after Putter had been changed, we see Lydia asking 
how he got into the room. The first time Robert goes off screen, he's actually rushing behind the camera, tearing off his breakaway clothes and getting into the bath. And the makeup assistant is behind the fake wall at the head of the bath, just having changed the putter wig and the cow- to the cowboy one. And then before the Scrimshaw um, meeting, Picardo's voice was overdubbed with shorts. And so during the meeting, Picardo used his own voice with a short-esque lilt, as the filmmakers didn't think that short uh, trying the cowboy voice would be convincing enough. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was just a great, like, like, which one's here? Which one's there? <laughs> yeah, that's you know? very much a that's very much a theater thing having to do like a quick change like that. But yeah, she talks yeah. to him out in the hotel room, looks back to the bathroom, goes, "Where is he?" And then as she turns around, you know that Robert Picardo is crawling on the floor trying to sneak into the bathroom, you know, below <laughs> the height of the camera yeah. to take off his clothes and jump in the bathtub. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's I always enjoy knowing that sort of thing is happening, you know, just off what the camera can see um but yeah they did a really good job with it because he looked totally chill when it came into him and he was there in the bathtub yeah (laughs) i thought it was great so um i thought this was also interesting that this is the only film that joe dante uh directed to win an academy award for best visual effects i thought that was kind of cool yeah, he, he likes to do, I don't want to say cheesy because cheesy is not the right word, but he likes to do kind of extravagant extravagant things, and those sort of things don't get a lot of love from the Academy. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the visual effects and special effects in this film are fantastic, so I'm not at all surprised that it won for that. Mm-hmm. Well, it was starting to be later in the 80s, so they were starting to be able to take more risk with even practical effects and things like that. So it, you know, it changed a lot of that dichotomy of cheesy effects, so to speak. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, so then there was one thing, like when Jack was making his way to the mirror so Pendleton could look, and he, uh, there was a hiccup that previously was recorded by Mel Blanc, and it was even used in various Warner Brothers cartoons later on. I thought that was funny. Yeah, filmmakers like to throw in little funny things like that. And, you know, the Wilhelm scream, which you'll hear all over the place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, whenever they can throw in something funny, they tend to like to do that. Yeah. And I thought, like, just overall, Martin Short was just, like, great in different scenes that he was doing. Like, like the whole telling of the dream and then him actually experiencing (laughs) the events Mm -hmm. of his dream were hilarious because he's like i'm possessed (laughs) because he thought somebody was talking to him and Mm. i thought it was great i just so funny oh and then um like scrimshaw and canker when they were shrunk to 50 percent in the film uh there were a few scenes that they were seen with the full-size actors, and these shots were filmed using a forced perspective. 
So for the car scene, the rear of the car is actually twice as large as the normal car rear and was from about 20 feet away. And then during the scene, half-size hands and double-size hands were used. And this method with the filmmakers didn't have to worry about compositing two separate shots in the post-production so that the shots could be completed quicker. And even with the final scene in the suitcase, uh, the case was twice as large, but the hands that closes it were real. So the camera did a sync in with the closing. So I like how they used a lot of different variety of camera type things, kind of like what they did with Star Trek Two with the giant ear, you know? Yeah, and they, they also did a lot of forced perspective uh, with the Lord of the Rings movies. The Lord of the Rings yeah. and The Hobbit, all six of the movies, they did a ton of forced perspective. And as you just said, they did it in this movie just to make it faster. Now, in Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, they could have done everything CG, but it's so much nicer to have the actors like actually there, even if they're 20 feet apart. <laughs> it's so much nicer to have the actors actually yeah. there and getting to respond to each other rather than just doing everything in CG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it makes for a better movie. It makes for it uh, to be a bit more believable, even though it's not believable because it's a <laughs> fantasy, you know. So, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I found that pretty cool. Um, it was funny when um, Robert Picardo uh, was saying for, um, like in the DVD commentary, when Jack and Lydia are puzzling over Scrimshaw's miniaturizer, uh, Picardo says, I pushed buttons on consoles for like like that for seven years. So it was his reference to the Doctor in uh, mm. Voyager. So I thought that was kind of cool. <laughs> and um, like you had said, you know, Joe Dante, he turned down this movie. And after making Explorers, the story, of course, was rewritten as like a sci-fi comedy. And I thought it was kind of cool that Steven Spielberg joined with him. And this seems to be a thing with Spielberg and Dante that, you know, they've collaborated on more than one film, you know, to uh, see it through, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think think Dante, if I remember the order, Dante turned it down. Uh, Either the producers or writer, whoever took it to, I want to say Warner Brothers, and it went through a few people. Um, even John Carpenter was temporarily thinking about directing it. And he's mm-hmm. the one who got, I can't think of the writer's name. He's the one who got the writer who did the rewrite. Um, and then it was okay. a much, much better movie after that rewrite. And then, but the movie was still stalling. And so Carpenter left the project to do Big Trouble in Little China. And so he was oh, okay. off doing that. And then that script that he liked was given back to Dante. And Dante liked so much what the change was that he then agreed to direct the film. So oh, I think that's if awesome. I remember correctly, that was the chain of events sort of behind the scenes of what was going on. But yeah, it was, it was, it was from Carpenter's suggestion of the screenwriter who did the, the big rewrite on it. Cool. Well, that's... That's some new trivia I didn't know before. <laughs> yeah. So so that was pretty awesome. Um, I guess they used two different shopping malls for the scene where the doctor injects Tuck with, or 
and Jack's tuck into Jack's rear. Um, the opening scenes were uh, at a place called the Northridge Mall in San Fernando Valley in L.A., and then the scene where he reaches the top and rams the syringe into Jack is on the top floor of the Sherman Oaks Galleria, uh, which is another mall several miles away. So it's like it's interesting that those malls were so similar in kind of design, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, design well. and color and light and. It, yeah, they just, it, and it looked like it was the same mall. So, yeah, they did a good job of picking just the right corner to just like film yeah. whatever that little part is that they needed to get. And then, you know, it doesn't surprise me that they do that because in, in some malls, you get the feeling that they're made kind of universal sometimes because there's two malls in Omaha. Uh, one is called, um, uh, Oakview, one is called Oakview, and then one is called West Roads, and they have similar like elevators. And in Oakview, it's a big round circle area where the elevator is in, but then at West Roads, it's more square. So it's just mm. kind of interesting how mm. different malls have a different perspective of where they're going to put an elevator or where they're going or how they're going to design like their middle section you know mm-hmm. so I, mean, I thought they that could was kind of cool they could be owned by the same company or it could have been the same builders that did both of them so mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and so it was it's just a neat neat little thing that happened you know mm-hmm. um so another thing is uh the license plate on Mr. Igo's car is called <laughs> Snap-on yeah. and it's re- reference to Snap-on tools but the funny thing is is that it's similar with his hand because he had different Snap-on hands mm, mm-hmm. so I found that yeah. funny Yeah, and there's one scene where that license plate was really obvious and you know that everybody in the theater when it first came out probably just sat there laughing like already knowing that <laughs> Snap-on hand is kind of where he got that from yeah yeah so I thought that was kind of cool um, and then let's see if you pay close attention to the scene in Lydia's desk or at Lydia's desk in the newsroom, you can spot an ultrasound image of their baby pasted over Tuck's framed portrait, teasing the future reveal that they're soon to be parents. I thought that was interesting too, because mm-hmm. it's like you really have to pay close attention to that scene mm-hmm. to actually see that actually happen. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, because yeah, she had known for a couple months, obviously, but she hadn't told him. So uh, it seemed mm-hmm. like it was sort of a yeah. Again, if you caught it as the camera went passing it, but it just kind of seemed like she was still trying to figure out how to tell Tuck or if she was going to tell Tuck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I thought it was also interesting, you know, when we're talking about like the balls and stuff, the labs at the beginning of the film of the film is like a polar opposite of what Victor Scrimshaw's uh, lab was like. Uh, Because the lab when Dennis Quaid is miniaturized is what a real lab would look like. And then it's basically a poor man's miniature homemade pod. But then with Scrimshaw, his was like 
elaborate and like a giant <laughs> clean room and like it's all this high tech industrialized tools and uh, with all the proper funding and everything. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, we can see the differences, but we mm-hmm. see the difference between the real science mm-hmm. and the fake science. Yeah. And all they wanted of what to do, yes, they supposedly just wanted to was. steal stuff. Like they weren't actually yeah. there making things. They just wanted to steal things from everybody else. So, mm-hmm. And also in the lab, in, in Tuck's lab, uh, what I really loved uh, re-watching it now is looking back and seeing all the giant monitors and thinking to oh, myself, yeah. like, oh, I used to have those. <laughs> and, like, they take <laughs> up, like, half of a person's desk. I'm like, how yeah. in the world can you work with a monitor that giant sitting on your desk? <laughs> <laughs> you make it work. I know. And obviously that's what I did. <laughs> but <Yep. laughs> how I made it work, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, like, even today, though, they they make these tablets that are at least almost 20, 20 feet long or 20 feet in diameter. Or not 20 feet, not 20 feet, 20 inches, 20 inches in diameter. Man, that would be a huge monitor, 20 feet. I'm just like, wow, Randy, where are you going with this? <laughs> 20 inches, gotcha. <laughs> Been up a while. What can I say? You're just making it fun. Don't worry. Exactly. (laughs) You know, it's like Frank's 2,000-inch TV, you know? (laughs) But, yeah, so, you know, today they have monitors, or, well, uh, you know, tablets that are 20 inches long and big. And it's like I saw one in a vehicle once that it was this giant tablet. And it's like, how would they work with that? What would they use it for? Does it have a stylus? Does it work with a stylus? What does it do? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it does. It didn't appear to be one of those types of tablets that would have a stylus. Because, <laughs> no offense to tablets, but the screen just didn't seem like it would be the kind that would have a stylus to it. Because it would be, you would see all the marks, or you would see, like, it... it even could be scratched, you know? Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's, there's differences there, but, uh, so, all right. So why don't we get into some of the soundtrack aspects on the film? What's your overall general thoughts on the score? Um, I heard a quote someone say about it and I kind of agree with the quote is that as far as, uh, most of Goldsmith's music go, this is one that uh, it's kind of a compilation of a lot of his other movies. Like you kind of hear, you know, little, uh, little, you know, cadences and things that go on that you kind of think, oh, that sounds a little bit like some of his other movies. And it's not mm-hmm. necessarily something that you would sit down and listen to the soundtrack from beginning to end. Um, and not that that's a bad thing, but he yeah. kind of made it, uh, it's a little bit, odd it's a little bit strange he's got some weird sound effects like he kind of made it that you kind of have to be watching the movie in order to like really like be able to appreciate the music um oh yeah for him uh most of his soundtracks as you know randy um are you can just listen to and they're just fun but for this one you kind of have to watch the movie like it the music doesn't work quite as well without the visuals 
And I don't think that's mm-hmm. a bad thing, but I think I think it does mean that people are less likely to listen to this particular score um, compared to some of his other stuff. Yeah, I would I would have to agree with you because like in a lot of films that he's done, like the Rambo films and uh, just some other films that he's done, like Total Recall and uh, Planet of the Apes, you know? <laughs> I mean, a lot of these films have, you know, I'm my list of movies that I'm listing off are so minute <laughs> compared to the length of film scores that Jerry Goldsmith has mm. done. Uh, brilliant man, wonderful scoring person, uh, had great recording experts that worked with him. Uh, but, you know, with as with the Rambo films, there were several complications with the Hungry... It was the Hungry Orchestra. They, they weren't as uh, <laughs> active, or they weren't as well-made. All right, so we were talking about the film scores of Jerry Goldsmith and the problems that he had with different scores and even, like, absurdity at times. You know, with different film scores that have, like, pop tunes in between uh, the orchestral arrangements and everything, this film seemed to actually work with that. You know, I mean, they had several actual pop songs that were included in the film, but then having the adventure score mm-hmm. really actually stood out for it. You know, it, it, it made, I, I actually liked it a lot in the way that it didn't provide any, any reference to the comedic effects. Like, remember when we talked about, uh, Crocodile Dundee or even, what was the film that we talked about that had had a comedic score it had a goofy score um, mm. to it. I mean, even Big Trouble had that sort of yes. thing where it was just it yes. was just kind of silly to go along with the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then this film it had more of an adventurous, exciting uh, arrangement to it that made it more to blend with the era of those films. Like you look at the films of like. Um, Jewel of the Nile or Romancing the Stone and those are very like they have a quirkiness to them Mm. but they're also straight adventure scores as well Mm. so Mm -hmm. um, I think I felt was just a little bit adventure Um, well I should say Mm -hmm. it's sort of half and half like half of the music is kind of one thing quirky and weird and um, it it was sort of like more moods than actual songs mm-hmm. for some of the stuff. Yeah. And then the other side, I don't know if I would say adventure quite so much. Um, it was almost, I want to use the word like majestic. Um, like mm-hmm. there were times with just big, beautiful, you know, sometimes major chords, sometimes minor chords. It gets a little weird and dark at times, but it was just really big and full and beautiful. And I actually kind of like that. Um, even though so much of the film was silly and it, it, it mm-hmm. complemented it rather than it sticking out. Yeah, it was like, it's like your straight man to your comedian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And it actually made the comedy work more with the music that was mm-hmm. included. So yeah. I, I really like that. But, like, in my notes that I found, I thought it was interesting that um, there's a lot of reference for Goldsmith using Explorers, 
the the score to Explorers, and I found that really interesting too because that score is also a straight adventure score, but it's very quiet. It's not like it's not big and and booming and and loud and adventurous like this film is. Like it has this has some very big moments in it, but with like Explorers doesn't have that great amount. And so, you know, it, it's it's different and then you look at different adventurous film scores like just the different themes that Goldsmith used and like uh just in particular the the touching on-screen rendition that comes from uh the cue known as the womb where Quaid stumbles upon his own son uh in his girlfriend's womb and then um the there's another theme of determination for the scientific aspect of the journey the expedition theme of a fantasy variety and you get that even from the very beginning of the film where you see you're not really sure what you're seeing you know there's this this like the main strange titles. yeah mm. there's this strange like noise music that goldsmith uses and then you as the camera pans out you find that it's actually ice cubes mm-hmm. and it didn't look like that when you first saw it because it looked much deeper much much more intricate uh but it wasn't you know it's this very simple thing of you know um, polycarbons and you know molecules mm. condensing together, you know, and so I thought that was just really interesting. And uh, he he seemed to use a lot of different styles of different composers, such as Inigo Morricone and um, even of Star Trek, uh, the motion picture, you know, which he did score. So uh, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then, like, even with the evil henchman, you know, having his replaceable hand, mm. even though, you know, we find it really humorous and everything, but <laughs> what's neat is that it's like this this out-of-experience movie uh, theme that's taken, seems like, from Masters of the Universe, which was composed by Bill Conti. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like a totally different type of score, but it's like this bombastic, loud, you know, exciting moment, and yet it's for the bad guy. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and, I, and then I do, I do like how he mixed genres a lot in this particular yeah. score, from from strange mood stuff to, like you said, a lot of adventurous stuff. And then there's like really like sweet, majestic music along, and then there's silly mm-hmm. stuff. And for a film that's, you know, in general a comedy and a science fiction comedy, you wouldn't necessarily think all of those things would work together. But somehow he gets it all to work. Yeah. It, I just... That's what really impressed me about the score is that it has these different genres and it carries through for his work. So mm-hmm. I, I really... I think it's actually pretty good. Mm-hmm. So the cues that I've chosen to play to start is uh, Main Title, Tell Me About It, uh, State of the Art, The Charge. And so I've, I found these cues to be kind of the start 
of the journey for our hero. And then I love how we get that iconic music for Dennis Quaid uh, when he's about to go into the rabbit. And so, Erica, what do you think of these? Uh, yeah, we've been talking about the main title a little bit. Um, it's actually one of my favorite tracks um, on the whole thing. Uh, it just starts out kind of weird and strange. And like you said, it's all close-ups of, you know, water and ice. And you just don't really know what's going on. And he just really mm-hmm. wanted to kind of build up that, like, strangeness as you're seeing the opening credits. And then the second half just kind of pops in with all this, like, weird synth. And it's all, like dissonant and you hear these weird like harmonics and ghost notes and he just Mm -hmm. starts it off with that first track of you just kind of wondering like what am (laughs) I about to watch because I don't even know what's going on and I kind of like that just kind of making the audience kind of sit up and think like I'm not hearing traditional music I'm not seeing anything traditional on screen we're obviously in for a a ride that we weren't expecting when we came into this Mm -hmm. so yeah I kind of like how they sort of jump straight into this is going to be weird just put your seatbelt on well and that's what i get the feeling that jerry goldsmith he was that type of composer that could do that a lot Mm -hmm. like he did it with planet of the apes he's done it with several other movies and i mean planet of the apes kind of sets a standard that he could use you know different instruments different tools to make these noises and so Maybe he used that with Inner Space to see, hey, let's do this with the music and see how it sounds. Mm-hmm. And then using like different instruments as he goes through different genres of movies. And I just I like how Jerry Goldsmith has that ability to change uh what he uses. Mm-hmm. I, I I like that. Mm-hmm. So so why don't we go ahead and and play those cues?
Alright, so next, we're going to play Woman in Red, Optic Nerves, The Cowboy, and Hold It. Erica, what are your thoughts on these cues? Uh, I liked the Woman in Red, and the whole time like I was listening to it, I kept thinking to myself, this is what a human thinks it would sound like if you were inside a computer. Like, all these weird, like beepings and strange noises going on like like i mm-hmm. felt like we had suddenly jumped into tron and like we were inside mm-hmm. like computer graphics and all these weird buzzings and it's like as a human we would think hey i'm sure that's what it sounds like obviously it wouldn't <laughs> sound like that but that's just yeah. kind of like our interpretation of what that would sound like so i, mm-hmm. I enjoyed that track for mm-hmm. that aspect um and then of course the cowboy it was just silly and he is just ridiculous and uh it just (laughs) and it's sort of it's sort of it's sort of silly and a little bit you know like majestic at the same time which just kind of makes it feel sillier (laughs) yeah so uh, so yeah i kind of when it's on screen yeah yeah. so i just kind of like the dichotomy that he was playing with of of it being a little weird a little bit sweet and just knowing how weird the cowboy was so Mm mm-hmm yeah All right, so let's go ahead and play those cues.
All right, so sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. Um, I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Uh, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. Um, lastly today, we're going to play For the Money, A New Man, Retransformed, The Womb, Stop the Car, and No Red Lights. Erica, what are your thoughts on these cues? Uh, I really like Stop the Car. Um, it starts and it makes you think that it's going to be this big, huge adventure theme. And yet it's a little off kilter. There's some strange like rhythms that kind of come at you. There's He's got an interesting you know, instrument choice. Um, but I think of all the songs in the score, it's probably one of the tracks that someone who likes listening to scores would listen to mm-hmm. on its own. So it definitely holds up as its own song, even though, you know, of course, Goldsmith just kind of makes it a little weird, a little kind of jumps around a little bit. And it's just a little bit weird to listen to, but (laughs) it's a lot of fun to listen to. So that's why I like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. So um, so where can people find you, Erica? Uh, Best place would be my website, which would be ericachristie.com. That's E-R-I-K-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E. You can find all my social media, all my videos, pretty much everything on there. Yeah, in fact, the last time that I talked to Eric Woods of Cinematic Sound Radio, he said he was going to follow you and check out your videos in photography. So, mm-hmm. Excellent. so there's a plug right there for you. So... <laughs> Thank you, Eric. <laughs> All right. And now you said that you really liked The Womb. What did you like about that one? Well, I found it, like, subtle and calming in a way, even though it gives you kind of this feeling of romanticism that has almost like a over-the-top sweeping and, like, emotional feeling for what he's seeing like you don't you don't get a lot of um a lot of exposure to it because there's a lot of noise before that cue actually begins Mm. you know and and you have all this adventure scoring that's in between that but then when he's actually when you're actually seen inside the womb and he's looking at the child you get that like almost romantic, uh, melodic uh, score moment that makes him realize how uh, how he needs to make her aware that he's actually in her. So mm-hmm. I, I really liked it. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a unique way of looking at uh, that piece of music. Mm-hmm. So excellent. Yeah. So it's kind yeah. of his his moment where he realizes he needs to shape up and <laughs> take responsibility mm-hmm. for his life and just kind of has that moment of like oh my gosh it's a baby and yeah it's <laughs> yeah. one of his really only like big like sappy emotional scenes in the film so exactly because he seems in the whole film that he's kind of this like immature cocky well, kind of know you know over the like top that. guy he is like that <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> He comes across that way in the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got that boyish grin throughout a lot of the film. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that's kind of fun. Uh, so you can find me on Podbean, Google Play, Apple Podcast, Fa- Facebook, Stitcher, and on Twitter. Now this is my new Twitter handle, at Soundtrack Alley. It is an actual at Soundtrack Alley. So anyone who listens to this episode can now follow me at Soundtrack Alley on Twitter. And also, you can email me at SoundtrackAlley at Yahoo.com. And so now we'll play these last cues. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.